Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Thank you for choosing to listen to another edition of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. On this week's show, we'll discuss the craft and Unilever buyout that went nowhere and reasons for that. We'll also talk about Wendy's annual investor day and what we can learn from their presentation. And finally, we'll discuss Texas Roadhouse and their earnings in an increasingly crowded U.S. steakhouse space. But we begin this week with earnings from Dean Foods, the largest dairy producer in the U.S. and is often a bellwether for the rest of the dairy industry. They reported for Fourth quarter results last Thursday before the opening bell. And it's interesting because they missed on top line revenue. In fact, they had their eighth straight quarter of stagnant or falling sales. Yet at the same time, they were able to increase net income. So a little bit of mixed signals for Dean Foods operating in a space that is becoming increasingly difficult to squeeze margins out of. Yeah, and we've spoken a lot about the relatively high milk prices in the recent years, and this has caused an increased amount of substitutes on the market. And I think that's one reason you see revenue declines for Dean Foods. A lot of people may be acquainted with some of their brands. Dean Foods holds such brands as Broughton, Berkeley Farms, Country Fresh, Dairy Pure, and Lando Lakes, which also has a butter line as well. So we see that soy, almond milk, rice milk, and cashew milk have really taken over some of the market share that Dean Foods has held for so long. Dean Foods is actually the number one player in the dairy space in the United States. They also have some European operations and production facilities as well. But people are wanting more and more to stay away from dairy foods. They're wanting dairy-free foods or lactose-free foods for health-related reasons. But I did a little bit of research, and in the United States, an estimated 15 million people have food allergies. But a very small percentage of this is milk or egg-based, around 2.2%. 3 million people or so have a allergy to milk. This is a very small percentage of the overall population when you're looking at both children and adults. So I think people are overreacting a little bit as far as the lactose-free movement is concerned. Nevertheless, you do see declining sales for Dean's Foods. You see revenue came in just shy of $2.02 billion for the quarter, which was actually in line with analyst estimations, but slightly less than the 2.022 they clocked last year for the same quarter. So as you mentioned, Trent, the eighth straight quarter of stagnant or falling sales for the milk producer. Net income for Dean Foods, however, reached $32.8 million or 36 cents per share. This missed analyst estimations, but the same quarter last year, they had about half as much earnings per share. So overall, you see revenue declines for the company, but they've looked to other ways to create efficiencies within the company that really gives them better margins. And so you've seen them really focused on what they can control, what they can control from the production standpoint, keeping costs down, even though they've had higher competition from outside producers in an entirely different realm when you're talking about other types of milk products. But overall, on a full-year basis, they did have a slight decrease in revenue as well. You're seeing a decline from $8.1 billion recorded in 2015 
to $7.7 billion in 2016. So that helps give you a generalized picture of the company as a whole. And as we look at those numbers, you can see the company as a whole is trying to address the falling sales by looking at other areas. And Trent, this is interesting in that they compared their own production levels to that of the USDA fluid milk production rates from last year. And it looks like both are falling overall 1.2% year over year for the USDA fluid milk production rates. But when you compare Dean Foods' full year 2016 volumes, it's down 2.1% compared to 2015. Still, you have to credit Dean Foods for squeezing out a decent showing on net income and that earnings per share. You mentioned 36 cents per share, which does miss analyst expectations. But you wonder if analyst expectations were perhaps a little bit unrealistic or a little bit high for the company. When you look at milk prices over 2016, you'll see in many months that milk prices were as cheap, if not cheaper in many cases, than they have been any year since 2009. That's as far as the consumer price index is concerned. So back in December, which would have been the last full month covered during this quarter for Dean Foods, the average cost of a gallon of whole milk, according to the CPI, was $3.29. You have to go back all the way to 2009, seven years back, in fact, to find it any cheaper, which would be $3.10 back in December of 2009. The fact that Dean Foods is able to produce a profit despite the fact that milk commodities and futures quotes for milk have gone up significantly over the past six months really speaks to how they're succeeding on an operational level. When you look at commodity futures as far as price quotes, for class three milk, which is a pretty standard measure, we see it actually peaking towards the end of 2016, up near 1750, where now it sits currently around $16.85. Earlier in 2016, it was all the way down at $12.75. And if you look at a two or three year graph, it was very inexpensive at the early part of 2016, but it has started to rise a little bit towards the end of 2016 and into the beginning of 2017. So Dean Foods has to be commended as far as their operational procedures, making sure that they are still producing some sort of earnings per share, despite the fact that milk costs are going down largely in supermarkets, yet the prices of milk on the front end for Dean Foods to process, those prices are going up or are stagnant. So they are seeing some pricing pressure in terms of their retail sales, and that's something that's, of course, squeezing grocers in this entire scheme as well. However, they did mention some things in the future that they're looking towards, including product innovation and diversification of their holdings. And when you look at some of the larger dairy producers in the United States, maybe Highland would be a good example. Highland has gotten into the almond milk and soy milk and coconut milk game. They have different holdings in that area and they sell different products in that area. And that's something that Dean Foods is looking to do is maybe diversify, making sure that they have a decent number of lactose-free products for those people with allergies that you mentioned earlier. 
I had mentioned that competition is approaching Dean Foods in a multitude of ways, and I was very curious looking through the earnings call as to how they were going to address these falling sales that I was talking about earlier. One of the ways they're going to address these falling sales is to increase advertising, which actually started throughout multiple ad campaigns in 2016. And this relates to their overall goal of fortifying their multiple brands. So I had mentioned about a half dozen well-known brands under the Dean Foods banner, but they actually have several dozen brands to choose from and they're different throughout the regions of the country but awareness of new products is also something they've talked about and Trent that really ties in nicely to what you had said trying to compete on multiple levels they're going to have to make great strides in awareness of these new products and that also ties in to television advertising to get this message out they mentioned product innovation and diversification led by changing consumer desires and this is something they actually changed on their website if you go to deanfoods.com this is part of their overall mission statement now is to be more customer focused, listen to their customer. And they said, despite the relatively strong milk industry, they have found opportunities in other areas. In 2016, they did have under their brand Dairy Pure, a number of new value added SKUs, including the lactose free, different creams, spreads and creamers, including half and half. Caribou Coffee is another brand that you may be acquainted with. All of these newer products in 2016, they're actually looking to distribute more so more widely in 2017 to really get their brand out there. And this, again, plays into the idea of fortifying their brands, becoming very strong in the face of a very challenging consumer and a changing dynamic in the marketplace. And you see from Dean Foods an increased emphasis on some of the RTD or ready-to-drink offerings that they've got. And I do think that that's where a lot of other companies are seeing growth. You see, of course, increased and renewed interest in things like ready-to-drink teas, ready-to-drink coffees, and even waters throughout the industry. So if Dean Foods can enter in those certain areas, they'll have ways to be able to bolster their top-line revenue and maybe see an increase on that front for the first time in eight quarters. The thing everyone has been talking about in business news, last Friday, Kraft Heinz tried to press ahead on a $143 billion takeover bid for Unilever, a European conglomerate, a conglomerate that really has a lot of consumer-facing products, both in the food and health and beauty industries. The two controlling companies of Kraft Heinz are 3G Capital, a Brazilian investment firm that's headquartered in New York, and Berkshire Hathaway, who of course is headed by none other than Warren Buffett. But 3G Capital is known for growing through acquisition, not organically, pretty much the same strategy that Berkshire Hathaway has employed throughout the last several decades. Brief Unilever background as they sell over 400 brands that reach 2.5 billion consumers each day with their different product base. They have a global business that touches nearly 50 countries, and they've been focused recently on emerging economies. So Contrary to the strategy that 3G Capital has and Berkshire Hathaway has, they do have a lot of organic offerings as well. Recently, they have bought some different brands that our listeners may be aware of, such as St. Ives that is big in the health and beauty industry. They are headquartered in London, and they have grown greatly over the last few years. So I think this is one of the big drivers that has really caught the attention of Kraft Heinz. As for Kraft Heinz, they weren't always Kraft Heinz. In 2013, Berkshire Hathaway bought Heinz in a takeover bid. In 2015, in July of 2015, 
Hines had purchased Kraft, and they merged, resulting in the one singular company. Berkshire Hathaway at that time had a 52.5% overall stake in the combined company. Kraft at the time nearly did 98% of its business in the United States and Canada. So to put this in perspective, Kraft Heinz does a lot of business in North America. So it's quite interesting. A lot of analysts were speculating as to why exactly they were looking at a company that exists mostly in the European area. For Kraft Heinz, they do have a lot of well-known brands such as Planters, Velveeta, Oscar Mayer, Jell-O, Lunchables, and Maxwell House, among others. The overall deal that I mentioned to preface this story, a $143 billion bid. This would be an 18% premium on Unilever's closing price last Thursday. However, this didn't go well as a lot of consumers were saying that this would be creating too big of a company overall and this steep criticism caused something to happen over the weekend. Exactly. And so the deal ended up falling through over the weekend as Unilever more or less rejected the surprise bid. And there are a number of different factors in here. Number one, of course, as you mentioned, Leighton, you had the consumer factor where many consumers expressed concern over the fact that you had two enormous giants, not only in the food industry, but in other consumer staple industries coming together and merging their powers. The other aspect of it is when you look from a Unilever shareholder's perspective, you wonder if 18% is truly enough of a premium on their share price in order to garner acceptance of that takeover bid when in the food and retail industries we're seeing a lot closer to a 25 to 30 percent premium in some cases as much as a 50 to 60 percent premium over the share price and shareholders certainly had reason to believe that Unilever's share price might go up more than 18 percent over the next couple of years so perhaps there was a lot of shareholder consternation as well had this deal gone through it would have been the third largest acquisition in history you have the original largest acquisition in history taking place in Europe between Mansman and Vodafone back in 1999. And then the next year in 2000, Time Warner pitched an acquisition deal for America Online that stands as the second largest deal of all time at $181 billion. And then more recently here in the United States, you had Verizon Wireless completing an acquisition for $130 billion. So this would have come in just ahead of that had Unilever accepted the $143 billion bid, but they didn't. And now just this week, Unilever has announced that basically they're telling their shareholders that they're doing an internal review and what they're calling a value review to display to their shareholders after turning down this acquisition deal that they can essentially go it alone. They're looking at certain costs and how to potentially cut costs going forward to make sure they're returning some sort of value to shareholders that, you know, in some cases might feel a little bit jilted that this deal wasn't approved by those in Unilever's front office. That is true. And I think when it's all said and done, both sides respect each other. After all, Warren Buffett had said that there's going to be a lot of respect shown through this deal. Basically, if he offers a deal for any particular company, it's saying that the company operates very well. It's not trying to add any sort of value to that company. They're seeing that the companies they procure are already running very well. And I think Unilever has done a very good job, as I had mentioned, growing massively over the last few years. They've really shown their work 
worth. And I think it's going to be fairly easy to really show their shareholders that they are performing well and they have a lot of growth runway to put out over the next few years, more than that 18% premium that Warren Buffett and 3G were putting out there. We move on to the quick service restaurant industry. Lots to talk about from Wendy's as they hosted their annual investor day during the last week. They also reported their preliminary fourth quarter results during that same time. Now, the company is projected numbers that will end up missing estimates on both profit and top line revenue, but they're still showing a number of strengths and a number of what they see as runways to growth in 2017 and beyond. Let's talk about some of the numbers first. They showed at least preliminary total revenue of $309.9 million. That lagged behind the consensus analyst expectation of $312.8 million by nearly 1%. Furthermore, top-line revenue numbers did decline year-over-year year due to the fact that they sold off many of their company-owned locations to franchisees, thereby turning a lot of their top-line revenue into franchise fees and rental agreements rather than actual sales. So while the margins might be higher on their revenue and their earnings came in fairly strong at $0.08 cents per share and just missed analyst expectations of $0.09 cents per share, there's still signs that the company is growing and growing in a strong fashion. We always talk about same store or same restaurant sales in this case, and you see a continued increase for Wendy's towards the end of fiscal year 2016. You see 16 straight quarters now of same store sales growth in the United States and overall worldwide. This most recent quarter, it was down to just 0.8% in terms of same restaurant sales growth. However, when you look at the past two years combined, as they were going against some pretty harsh comps from 2015, combined same restaurant sales growth of 5.6%. Still some strength there in terms of their individual restaurant sales growth, but a number of other strategic initiatives were discussed by the company and shareholders were given updates on how these things were being implemented across the board. Yeah, there was a lot to go through here with this Investor Day presentation from Wendy's. Trent, you had mentioned the same restaurant sales coming in at a positive number, and they were against strong comps, but a lot of momentum in the positive direction for Wendy's. 537 restaurants sold to franchisees. This is a very broad strategy that they've had in place for quite some time. They want less of a corporate ownership structure, and that is the majority of the reason why revenues came in a little lower. One would look at this preliminary earnings report and say that this is not a good sign for Wendy's and that revenue is lagging over last year's quarter. But if you look a little deeper at the numbers, you understand that this is because they have less company ownership, but the comps are still very positive. They had $435 million in pre-tax proceeds from these restaurants being sold off to franchisees. 58 new net openings globally, which is actually the most they've had since 2005. So you can see that Wendy's as a franchise is growing rapidly. And I think that speaks to the strategy of refranchising and that if a company sees a larger runway, they tend to want to franchise out rather than have company-owned locations. You see other companies such as Chipotle not have any franchising agreements. They're going to be hard-pressed to grow more than the couple hundred stores annually that they are currently at right now. 
They accelerated the number of re-imaged stores and new unit builds to 620 in total in 2016. Re-imaged stores are basically just a, their fancy word for remodeled stores. They have a new design in the store and they've actually done a lot to improve their kitchen as well. They talked about decluttering a lot of the aspects in the back of the stores. Now, cumulatively, they have done 1,933 remodels or new units since 2011. And this, and this last year alone, what they've accomplished is actually 32% of the total builds. So you can see that they're growing out their efforts of re-imaging and these new unit builds. Overall, they want a better mix, 95% franchisee ownership in North America. This is, again, some of their strategy in order to really pool together the costs and make things more streamlined for the company overall. You see that they cited franchisee happiness and optimism and outlook. And they said that in the years prior, they had a 7.4 out of 10 rating as far as optimism is concerned. And now in 2016, they had a much higher level at 8.4 out of 10. So they said these happier franchisees lead to higher sales and overall top line revenues look to be increasing as 2017 is underway. These re-image stores, as you call them, they are part of their image activation system. And as you mentioned, they revised the rate at which they're doing this, wanting to build this out throughout the United States a little bit more quickly. Their 5% company ownership is also clustered in areas, metro areas in particular, where they feel like their company-owned stores are having good success in comparison to the franchisee-owned stores. One area includes the area of Dublin, Ohio, which is, of course, where they are based, but also Chicago, Denver, New York, Boston, the major metropolitan areas, essentially, the only locations where these company-owned stores still exist. And they're seeing an increase relatively in the number of restaurants owned by each franchisee. Every franchisee as part of this refranchising program has gotten an opportunity to pick up a few more restaurants along the way. And so in 2016, an average franchisee for Wendy's owned 15 restaurants where that number was just 11 in 2012. And this has helped to boost franchise optimism towards the future, which is very important for a company that does franchise out 95% of their location. So the breakdown of revenue is Leighton kind of alluded to. You see 80% of their revenue currently from Wendy's come from royalty fees as well as rent and franchising fees. And only 20% of the top line revenue comes from those 5% company owned restaurants. So they've really switched to now where they're more a franchising company and a real estate company. But they've done some intelligent things insofar as not selling off the real estate when they franchise off the locations. We see some companies attempting to sell off the real estate for more liquid cash. And because Wendy's hasn't necessarily been wanting for liquid assets, they've been able to retain the real estate and it's shown off in their financials and in their bottom line numbers. Over the next three years, Wendy's wants to see growth of around 1,000 stores globally. Now, this is going to require a number of restaurants per year. You average it out over the next few years. You're looking at about 250 restaurants per year, which is far faster than they have grown to this point. But they feel as though their image activation stores being almost completely renovated throughout the country will give them the opportunity to expand their store footprint globally, which is something that they feel they need to do in order to activate their image on a global basis. 
When we look at their market penetration, though, just in the United States in comparison to other QSRs, this is where they address the growth issue because I think a lot of people consider Wendy's to be more or less a mature company. Even though their price-to-earnings ratio currently on their stock sits in a growth-centric position, it's been over 20 for much of the last year, which would suggest some sort of runway to future growth. And Wendy's did a great job of addressing this in their presentation closer towards midway through their Investor Day presentation. They mentioned the fact that their U.S. penetration right now sits at one store for every 56,000 people, which lags behind Taco Bell. Burger King, McDonald's, and of course Subway, which leads the United States in market penetration per person. They feel like they have a number of markets in the U.S. They specifically mentioned top 20 markets, the major metro areas in the U.S., where there is very much a high potential for Wendy's to move in. They note that several of these markets only have a market penetration currently for Wendy's of one for about every 75,000 people, and they feel like they can enter these areas, build out additional stores in these areas in the U.S. without cannibalizing their own stores like what we've seen from perhaps the likes of Subway and McDonald's, at least what's been talked about in those areas. And it is strange to talk about Wendy's as a company that sees some sort of runway to growth in the future, but certainly we talk about Taco Bell wanting to build out their domestic locations and they actually have greater market penetration right now in the U.S. than Wendy's. So looking at it from that angle, Wendy's is certainly a growth-centric company, or at least they feel like they can be. But Leighton, now the question becomes, how do they continue bolstering same restaurant sales on an individual store level such that they're not risking building out their franchise at the expense of the focus on individual store quality? Yeah, absolutely. And the QSR industry certainly is not a zero-sum game. You're going to see that they can make strides in same restaurant sales, not necessarily at the expense of a McDonald's business or a Burger King's business. But you see that this runway in the United States is somewhat limited. However, this ties into their overarching goals in 2020 to have $12 billion in global sales, 11 of which are coming are coming from North America. So you do see that they have some experience in the international segment, but still their focus is going to be primarily on these North American units. And you had mentioned the 70% global image activation. This ties in nicely to how they really want their brand to be seen throughout the industry. They see that the fact that these units that are revamped have higher sales overall, this tends to make them believe that they can have more penetration in the United States and not really cannibalize their respective markets. Gross margins they want to see at 38 to 40%, which will be hard as they cited increasing wages, not necessarily food supplies though. They're still seeing some very good numbers as far as food, commodity costs, and other input costs as well. Their increased scale overall will still allow very low numbers as far as the commodity costs are concerned. Anytime you're talking about a company such as Wendy's that already has so many units, over 5,000 units in the United States, only increasing that will help their costs overall as you see economies of scale really helping their expense side of the bill. Overall, you see, Trent, a lot of strategy here when it comes to 
serving their customers and the quality of their food. And you've seen that throughout a lot of their recent ad campaigns talking about the quality of their food is substantial with regards to other competitors. They see they said that several customer surveys they've gotten back emphasized how customers view them as the quality leader in their space. They also said that value in a clean, comfortable restaurant environment will be coming back. And they said this really is taking the company back to the basics, back to what Dave Thomas had once said are the main goals for the company. Management said that they're continued focus on the customer equates to added speed, taste, cleanliness, accuracy, and friendliness. And we've seen consistent growth in these key areas. And I think drawing back to how franchisees are having more power and more prominence within the Wendy's business model, you're seeing that they're really taking hold of this strategy. And you're going to be seeing increased revenues at the individual locations if they can execute how the company has outlined. So a lot of positives here that I drew from the investor day. And one thing that really struck me as interesting as it relates to everything here as far as their overarching strategy is the advertising. They dedicated several slides on their investor day presentation to their advertising and the way they go about it. They actually mentioned several social media posts that have been going viral over the last few quarters. And they also talked about the featured commercials within the NFL and the NCAA presence as well. So they're really trying to take advantage of of a broader consumer base. And I think this is going to help them sustain growth as they try to grow out the number of units they have both domestically and internationally. You mentioned all the tradition with Dave Thomas's ideals for the company originally, but rather than highlighting tradition, I want to look at the modern way they're communicating with their customer. And that's actually something that they mentioned in this Investor's Day presentation is that they want to communicate in what they call a relentlessly modern way. This includes presence on social media platforms, but also it's not just having a presence, but having an effective presence and being able to make their presence known on these platforms and driving social media engagement. We see that just through the first two months of 2017, Wendy's has earned millions of dollars in free press because of their Twitter engagement with various trolls and that type of thing that are tweeting at their account. And in fact, Twitter, as well as Facebook and Snapchat, have all gone out of their way to mention how good Wendy's has been at using social media. And in fact, Snapchat went so far as to call them a pioneer in that format of social media. So Wendy's is on the cutting edge of being able to communicate with their customers, but also earn what essentially amounts to free advertising. You see them show up on news outlets such as MSN and Yahoo and CNN and all of these different internet news forums because of their social media presence. And it is a sterling example of what companies can do with effective social media managers. We should mention before moving on to the next story that shares of Wendy's are up over 300% since January of 2013. So the last four years. Shares right now around $14 a share, which is near an all-time high for the company. Another company that's publicly traded, Restaurant Brands, the parent company of Burger King and Tim Hortons, announced a $1.8 billion takeover bid for Popeye's Louisiana Chicken, representing more than a 23% premium of Popeye's share price from a month ago. As you look at the different aspects of this deal, you'll notice that 3G Capital, the company that we had mentioned earlier as a controlling partner in the Kraft Heinz deal with Unilever that fell out, is actually the controlling shareholder of restaurant brands. And so 
we look at the $1.8 billion price tag and we see that the company can more than pay for that. However, they've been eyeing Popeye's Louisiana chicken for quite some time, several months now, especially in the last four weeks. A lot of rumors have been circulating about their interest in Popeye's Louisiana chicken. So overall, we see that 3G, a multi-billion dollar firm, intends to pay for Popeyes with a cash-on-hand only deal, so they're not going to be using any sort of debt or other stock options with this deal. And if we look at 3G Capital as a restaurant operator, we see that in December of 2014, 3G successfully completed a merger of both Burger King and Tim Hortons and created restaurant brands. Now restaurant brands has really been growing their annualized revenue and is now a $26 billion company per its current share price. While Burger King and Tim Hortons have both grown with revenue, its margins and overhead have been the primary factors to making that deal succeed. And I think that's one of the things that they're going to be looking at with Popeye's Louisiana Chicken. And that there's a lot of corporate overhead that can be cut. There's a lot of synergies that can be made throughout this deal. The same types of deals that were made when Burger King and Tim Hortons came together. You see that economies of scale and corporate cuts most certainly will be employed to lock further value out of Popeye's. However, when questioned about this, the CEO of Restaurant Brands had said that they're actually not looking to really cut costs, however, to grow this company internationally. And that's something we had just got done talking about with Wendy's. However, they are different companies, but Popeye's has seen KFC really do well internationally, and it probably wants a piece of that pie. That's correct. KFC is seeing explosive growth now through Yum Brands' international holdings, particularly in China. And no doubt, Restaurant Brands Incorporated seized this growth from KFC, and they took this opportunity to snatch up an existing brand that, as you mentioned, doesn't necessarily need to grow a ton domestically. They've got an established brand, but that may have room to grow internationally. And of course, that's where Restaurant Brands is eyes have gone in terms of growth, not only in Burger King, but also in Tim Hortons as they have worked to grow Tim Hortons south of the Canadian border, of course, Canada, where Tim Hortons very, very popular, almost ubiquitous north of the border. But Popeye's is one of those businesses where they are in a competitive industry, yes, and the industry in the United States is becoming increasingly competitive. However, they are not facing the same stringent competition internationally or overseas as they would be were they to expand domestically. I think where I see the greatest ability for synergies is not only in terms of things like distribution, in terms of economies of scale, but also in converting some of the things that have worked so well for Burger King, most notably various limited time offers, and moving those over to Popeye's. With an existing chicken chain, an existing fried chicken chain, there are so many different things that you can do. And Burger King has been quite effective at growing same restaurant sales through these limited time offers, using things like the social media presence we talked about Wendy's having, and building the top line revenue of this chain. And this this isn't the only acquisition that Restaurant Brands International is rumored to be looking at. There were some rumors surrounding El Pollo Loco under the stock symbol L-O-C-O. They might be the next target for Restaurant Brands International. El Pollo Loco is a company who right now, when you look at their share price and when you look at their price-to-earnings ratio, they are a growth-centric company. They have a massive amount of white space in the United States.
athletes for what they do, yet their price-to-earnings ratio is very reasonable. And no doubt, Restaurant Brands International, as well as a few other companies, are looking at this and seeing maybe that there's a chance to get in on the ground floor of something that could explode very quickly. Yeah, and I think if you look at the fundamentals of these target companies, you're going to see that you can create a lot of opportunities for increased margins down the line. Something that I wanted to talk about in regards to margins is how they were able to increase both Burger King and Tim Hortons margins over the past few years. You see that their current gross margins at those two companies land around 44%. Currently, Popeyes has a gross margin of around 37%. So if you do the quick math there, if they can at least get up to 40%, you're saying that that's a 3% basis point increase in the gross margin, which of course helps the bottom line, helps the net income. But this is an interesting thing because I think if this deal goes through, it is going to show a lot of other players in the space. Why not partake in acquisition of a smaller operator? Another operator that we were talking about before airing was Bojangles, which has an $800 million market cap. A lot of other operators could pay cash for an operator such as Bojangles and do so very easily. Bojangles, of course, the deep following in the south and southwest part of the United States. And Bojangles certainly has been eyeing a lot of growth plans as of late moving up north. But then also you talk of a bigger company such as Wendy's, one that we were just talking about that has a market cap of $3.5 billion. If you get a company such as 3G Capital in there that has a lot of financial backing, a lot of reputation that is on the positive side in the restaurant industry, you can see a lot of mergers and acquisitions come forth, even though the stock market is seeing all-time highs right now and a lot are saying that these valuations are a bit blown out of proportion. So this is an interesting time to be seeing all of these deals. But again, you look at 3G Capital and what they were trying to do in acquiring Unilever in partnership with Berkshire Hathaway, you're seeing that the company really has plenty of cash to deal with. So it would not surprise me overall if you see some sort of other smaller acquisition such as the El Pollo Loco that you had mentioned or such as a Bojangles, which really fits into the space, the exact space that that Popeye's Louisiana Chicken competes in currently. Our final story for this edition of the Food Focus podcast has to do with Texas Roadhouse as they reported their fourth quarter earnings after the closing bell on Tuesday of this week, which would be February 21st. And they did miss on analyst growth goals. However, there is some positivity for this chain, which is actually in a very competitive space. They compete with Longhorn Steakhouse. We talk about how well Darden Brands has been doing. Also, Logan's Roadhouse, and to an extent, they're on the periphery of competing with the likes of Outback Steakhouse and Montana Mike's, who operate separate ends of the steakhouse continuum. Overall, Texas Roadhouse showed top-line revenue of $484.7 million, which fell short of the 10% growth that analysts had expected. However, year-over-year top-line sales was up 6.7%. And I think, Leighton, even better for Texas Roadhouse is the fact that same-store sales actually grew by 1.2%. Now, there were high expectations of 3.1%. Again, not sure where analysts 
plus expectations come in with industry standards because we see anything basically over zero for steakhouses right now is a positive sign. 1.2% is massive when you consider Longhorn Steakhouse, the success that they're having. They've seen same-store sales increases of less than 1%. And what's more, Texas Roadhouse is doing this not only through increases of traffic, but also increases in average check. Yeah, their average increases in traffic for the quarter rose 0.2%, which is a good sign, and then 1% increase in average check. So the 1% average check actually relates to their current price increases to try to deal with some increasing costs on the operations standpoint. But Trent, you're right. You're very right here in that this is a very good mark for the company. 1.2% same-store sales. Analyst expectations of 3.1%, in my opinion, were a bit too high, especially given the competitive landscape that you laid out nicely for this company. The company reported $0.29 per share for the quarter. Again, missing analyst consensus estimates by about $0.09. Net income for the company hit $20.7 million, and a lot of analysts were saying this is a bad sign for the company because while their revenue had increased, their top-line revenue increased 6.7%, you see declines of about 105 Five percent in net income. Their net income was over $2 billion more during the same quarter last year. The reasons for this I found very interesting in that they said that food deflation has been a real thing. They said about 2% is what they saw as far as commodity decreases. So their input costs have decreased by that amount. However, overall, besides that 2.9 food deflation, they said that wage inflation is going to be something that they've had to look at very closely. And they're looking at the specific areas in which wages have been going up. And the company cited during a question and answer session, both Colorado and Arizona, they said minimum wage increases have really affected the store operations. And therefore, they are looking at rolling out higher prices. And so for anyone out there who criticizes a company for not paying out wages, we have to understand the economics. If the inputs are higher, the output prices therefore have to be higher as well in order to give shareholders an appropriate return on their investment. Overall, another thing that I found interesting was that they've addressed a lot of interesting points as far as food deflation for 2017. A lot of people have been speculating that commodity prices are going to either stay stagnant or start to go up as you see gasoline prices budge a little bit from the 2016 lows. However, they cited price locks on 60% of their food inputs, one, one of the most important ones being beef. And so I think this is going to be good for the company as they cite another 1% to 2% food deflation measure for all of 2017. And when asked about this, management said that they can't really explain how they're coming to this figure, but they said they can even see over the 2% mark. And they said that a lot of costs are varying within the 40% that's not price locked, but they don't see a lot of things affecting those numbers overall. So you see the expenses for the company are going to remain stable except for the wages. So they are looking to increase prices just 1% in 2017. Again, these increased prices help pay for the increased expenses. But overall for the company, you see a, a very healthy company just squeezing margins just a little bit because of those wages. And in 2017, they plan to increase overall pricing by about 1%. It's interesting that they do mention price locks because that's something that restaurants oftentimes 
don't disclose. And in this circumstance, it could certainly help to allay some investor concern over what will happen when food prices eventually do go up, as you mentioned, as the prices of gas begin to budge upward. Looking at calendar year 2017, the company issued some forms of guidance for 2017 and that they have plans for 30 new Texas Roadhouse stores and also six Bubba's stores. They have holdings in this area as well, and for those that are unfamiliar with the chain, they're a dining concept similar to Hooters, and they did speak of extra money allocated in 2016 towards these openings that they're expecting in 2017. And they mentioned that they're not going to be more conservative on the buildings themselves to cut costs, but rather the site locations. They spoke of site work in this regard, the infrastructure that's needed at a location to hold a restaurant there. They also mentioned new menus to be rolled out potentially as soon as May, but these new menus will have calorie counts. There are a couple of different ways of looking at this, and Leighton, you and I were discussing this before the podcast, and that most of what they have is calorically dense. We are talking about a lot of steak, a lot of red meat, and some are fattier cuts. So this may be a turnoff to its non-core customer. Their core customer likely isn't going to care all that much about calorie counts. But the second way of looking at it is the fact that their competitors are being more and more transparent. So long term, it's going to be a necessary evil, and it might in turn drive more diners potentially to purchasing some of that white meat, some of their chicken products that are naturally lower in fat, yet high in protein. They did also mention 27 of their network stores that have entered what they call their radar that have posted large sales declines over the last 6 to 18 months. Texas Roadhouse is considering perhaps right-sizing or looking at even so far as moving those locations based on the input that we got from this earnings call. Not a bad thing overall is that something many restaurants do. And finally, we take a look at their share price following their earnings report and some of this 2017 guidance. Their shares were down over 14% despite the fact that they saw increases in same-store sales, currently trading right around $41 per share. They have a one-year low of $37.23 per share and a one-year high of just over 50 So it's been slightly volatile for Texas Roadhouse, but not too much so. And some analysts were saying this could potentially be a buying opportunity and that this is a relative one-year low for the company. I did want to quickly mention that those 27 stores that they cited as underperforming, they were pushed a little bit to answer what specific locations these were in, and the company declined to answer that. And then also, if you look at their overall store count, they have quite a bit of stores, so if they were to close these underperforming locations, they could do so and not be affected too much from the operations standpoint. As of the end of 2016, Texas Roadhouse operated over 400 locations and over about a dozen Bubba's locations as well. And do remember that any store closures likely would be overset and then some with the 30 new locations they've got in the pipeline for the next calendar year. Well, we've reached the point in the podcast where each Leighton and I tell you about an item that's new to the world of food or beverage that we tried in the last week. And as we always do, we'll start with Leighton. 
So last week I talked about a turkey bacon I decided to try from my local Costco. And it, again, I'm still eating that turkey bacon, that very same turkey bacon. But something this week that I tried was the buffalo style with blue cheese chicken sausage. And this was actually from Alfresco, a company that makes a lot of natural beef and chicken products. This is an interesting find because again, it is all natural. But if you look at the ingredient list, it is pretty simplistic. And there's not a lot of sodium. You would expect something like this with a lot of flavors added in there to be high in sodium, but it doesn't have a lot of sodium. We see that the calories for one link is just 140 and overall sodium content is about 570 milligrams and the protein content is about 14 grams. So a very delicious sausage. I actually wasn't feeling too guilty about this despite the relatively high fat content, but Alfresco is a brand that really is quite intriguing in that they have a multitude of different flavors with the same basic product line. We see that they have a roasted garlic variation. We see that they have a roasted pepper and Asiago variation. So over nine different variations of the same general chicken sausage. And I, I think this is really speaking to their strategy going forward. But overall, the reason I got this was it was on sale at my local supermarket. A good find, a little bit spicy, but a good taste overall. I went with the beverage section and actually tried out a relatively new beer. Now, the New England style of IPA is becoming more and more popular. Basically, it's a, a thicker, viscous form of IPA that's not all the way filtered, and most of them have a look similar to orange juice. And so I found a New England IPA that's actually brewed out of Michigan by Transient Artisan Ales. I was able to pick up a four-pack of 16-ounce cans. It ran, I think, it was pretty expensive, I'll say. It was 18 to $20, somewhere in that neighborhood. And the name of the beer is called The Juice is Loose. It had a very good rating on multiple beer rating sites. I poured it. It was a, a very dark orange. It was thick, as we mentioned, but this New England-style IPA was a little bit different than others I had tasted in that there was enough of a hop cut to balance out the thick sweetness of the malt that's being used and some of the juiciness of the hops. So overall, I enjoyed it. It's probably a little bit of expensive purchase for me to enjoy on a regular basis, but I'm familiar with the area in which Transient Artists and Ales operates. Is they're located pretty much directly between Gary, Indiana and Muskegon, Michigan, right around, in fact, for the listeners of the Retail Focus podcast, the headquarters of Meyer stores there. So uh, fairly local brewery. They do have limited distribution to the Chicago metro area and that type of thing in cans. And I would say this is a good beer, if only a good beer for a one-time purchase. I can't imagine having any more of these in one sitting because it is thick and it is fairly sweet. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Food Focus Podcast. For Leighton, I'm Trent saying so long until next week. Later this week, we'll discuss a number of retail earnings on the Retail Focus Podcast, including Home Depot absolutely rocking the retail industry with outstanding earnings from their latest quarter. Check us out on Twitter at The Food Focus, and we'll see you seven days from now. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries.